0: Derrick, born in New Jersey, as a youngster the family moved to Kalamazoo.
1: And he wanted to do one thing, play for the Yankees. The 3-2. That one's drilled deep to left field. Going back, Joyce. Looking up. See ya. 3,000.
2: And welcome to episode number 30 of the Sportscasters, the Big Three O. is July 12th, 2011 here in a very hot and steamy Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett and my co-host, as always, is Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? I'm sweating over here. It is very hot, very humid. Supposed to have some relief tomorrow, Wednesday. Supposed to cool down a little bit in true Buffalo, New York fashion. We never have too many of these hot days in a row. Yeah. But we have a busy show number 30 today. We have the distinguished, the classy, the beautiful Jane Levy making an appearance on the show today. She of course is the author of the book of the month, The Last Boy, about Mickey Mantle. And uh, she's also written a book about Sandy Koufax and another novel called Squeeze Play, which the USA Today called the greatest novel ever written about baseball. I'm actually going to going to check squeeze play out very shortly we also have an interview with Damon Hack Damon Hack is the NFL and golf senior writer for Sports Illustrated Sports and Golf.com we're going to have him on he's going to talk to us a little bit about the British Open this weekend and of course all the things that are going on with the NFL and the NFL lockout also we're going to have pick four Don you're not going to be too excited about the results last week but I certainly am And right now, let's just get everything started with three things. You know what? Before we get to three things, I wanted to mention this last week. I didn't. We didn't get to it because we went a little bit long in three things. And I want to thank our guest from last week, Spike, uh, for joining us. But I wanted to mention just a few ways to access the podcast. Of course, you can always get our podcast at our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Stitcher. All you have to do is search the Sportscasters. Stitcher will come out. You can subscribe on iTunes. If you're an iPhone or an iPad user, you can use Instacast, which is a nice little app that lets you subscribe to all your favorite podcasts, and you can stream them. There's no downloading involved. And Downcast is another app very similar to Instacast, and maybe the better of the two for the iPad. I would say if you're looking for one for the iPhone, I would use Instacast. If you're looking for one for the iPad, I would use Downcast. Also, if you're a Microsoft user, uh, OS, of course, Lion will be out this week. But if you're currently a Snow Leopard or Leopard user, there's a very nice app called uh, the Podcast Player Pro, which is available in the Mac App Store and is another way to get the podcast without subscribing, taking up use on the hard drive. This would probably be especially useful for mac air users with the smaller hard drives don you are an android user what is the best way to listen to the show on the android would stitcher be the best i would say stitcher yeah yeah so if you're an android user you can find it on stitcher so i just want to mention those different ways uh to find and download the podcast and with that said let's do three things
0: let's play a game all
1: right count of three
2: one all righty i'll take it off Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback.
0: <laughs> this is the funnest night
1: ever! <laughs> we just become best friends? Yep!
2: Now let's move
0: on to other business.
2: Alright, I'm going to get us started today. And I don't think this week we could do three things without talking about the incredible day that Derek Jeter had. Saturday at Yankee Stadium, getting his 2,999th hit, his 3,000th hit, his 3,001st, 3,002nd, and 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 3,003rd hit, all in one day. Only the second player to go 5-for-5 the day he went for 3,000, the last person being the only other person to do that is Craig Biggio. And he's the second player to get his 3,000th hit via home run. The only other player to do that was Wade Boggs. There's a famous video of Wade Boggs kissing home plate uh, with his three thousandth hit, and it kind of got me thinking about Derek Jeter as I watched the game. And it was the most fun I've had watching a baseball game in a long time, especially a regular season baseball game like that. And the fifth hit that he got was the game winning hit in the eighth in the eighth inning. He had a stolen base. He had two runs scored, two RBIs, including the game winner. He had a double. A single a home run just a triple short of the cycle and Derek Jeter's really always been the perfect player and it's not that big of a surprise that he would have the perfect day I don't know what your thoughts are Don but Derek Jeter what what, what else can you say I mean yeah
3: he joins a very exclusive group like 28th you said. player he's the twenty eighth so uh even Yankee haters can't knock that achievement. I saw a friend of yours tried to on Twitter. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's not much you could say. It's, it's hard to get lucky or be overrated with 3,000 hits.
2: And, you know, look, there's some players and teams that are hated in sports. A lot of people hate the Yankees. A lot of people hate Duke basketball. Maybe a lot of people hate the Lakers or the Celtics, whatever side of that rivalry you're on. And and that makes sports fun. Sports is always better with villains. But if you're a Yankee hater, I bet it's really hard to hate Derek Jeter. Just because he does everything the right way. And you could maybe be de- jealous of Derek Jeter. Jealous of his success, jealous of all the beautiful women he's brought home. You could be jealous of all the money he's made. But he's always done it with class, he's always done it with style. And I can only think of one instance where he was caught out late at a birthday party and maybe George Steinbrenner unfairly made a big deal of it, but then they patched that up with a really clever and funny MasterCard commercial, if you recall. <laughs> yeah. He's just the perfect athlete, and I find it hard to hate him, even if I, I wanted to. And maybe Jerry Rice is a good example of that. Growing up a Saints fan, I, never, I always wanted to hate the 49ers, but it was so hard to hate Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. Just because they were the they were the ultimate athletes, and Derek Jeter's like that. Yeah, Jerry Rice didn't exactly go out gracefully,
3: so I mean maybe Jeter can do that differently. But uh, yeah, I mean it's hard. Like you said, it's hard to it's hard to hate on a guy that just does everything the right way. I mean, you never hear about he's never had any legal troubles or anything like that. So uh, yeah, I
2: mean he's class. He's He's got style. He's a man's man. You know, he's got beautiful. He's got a beautiful fiance. He didn't. He didn't do anything like rush into marriage young and then have a divorce or a scandal. He he lived his life the way we all dream, and then now he's settled down at thirty six or thirty seven with Minka Kelly, and just everything about the guy is right. And I guess we could probably stop. I, I don't have to go on and on waxing <laughs> poetic about Derek Jeter. It's, it's been done over and over. But congratulations, Derek, and when we read Ian O'Connor's book, even though Ian O'Connor wasn't necessarily the best uh, to us as he kind of stiffed us, one thing that I know he said is that before he started to write the book, he knew that Derek Jeter was his son's favorite player, and when he finished writing the book, he was thrilled that Derek Jeter was his son's favorite player. And maybe that's a good way to stop.
3: Maybe the guy that had the second best day uh, on, what was it now? Saturday. Uh, Saturday. Uh, It was Christian Lopez. He's a 23-year-old Yankee fan who was in the crowd. By now, everyone knows who he is. He's the one that caught the Derek Jeter ball. And maybe gracefully, maybe you'd say uh, stupidly, gave it back for nothing. Well, I'm kind of on the side of... He might have been a little bit short-sighted there. Sure, it might seem like the nice thing to do. But he, it's come out now, owes about $100,000 in student loans.
2: St. Lawrence University.
3: Um, This ball was expected to fetch anywhere in the quarter million to $500,000 range. And I don't know, man. I mean, I can't think of an athlete that I like enough that I would put them over... Myself or even like my family, he could have easily paid off his loans. He could have helped his parents pay for their house or whatever. I mean, I don't know his family situation that well or anything. I just think it's the type of thing that he thought was the was the right move at the time. And now it's even coming out that because what they gave them fourteen k was so tangible, it's going to be real easy to tax him on the gifts he got. From yeah, about Yankees. fourteen thousand in taxes. Whereas if he sold the, the Yankees, ball,
2: got to pick that up, right?
3: But then, isn't that another gift? I mean, I guess maybe that's another gift. Maybe they give him a gift of uh, thirty grand, and then the sixty percent he sees right. of it he could pay off in the taxes. I I would hope the Yankees or Derek Jeter do the right thing there, because uh, the kids could have walked away with a small fortune and chose to take some baseball tickets and. Well, there's a lot of th-
2: there's a lot of things here, Don. I think one is you get wrapped up in the moment. Yeah, you know, being at the stadium. And catching the ball and being a part of that, and being a Yankee fan, I think he want he didn't want he didn't want to be that guy who who. All right, and I guess he didn't went have, for the dollar. Right. I suppose. I guess
3: he didn't have the benefit of hindsight. Like he probably wouldn't have known the numbers going in. Like if I catch this ball, it's going to be worth half a million dollars right. or whatever. But
2: it's tough. It's a tough situation because he really did catch a lottery ticket. And he decided to throw to it out it instead of cashing right. it. Yeah, yeah, And that's a tough decision to make. And the Yankees did a good job, I think, of compensating him. They gave him four tickets, the best four tickets in the stadium for the Sunday game. Then they gave him four, season tic- four box season tickets for the rest of the year. They gave him three Derek Jeter jerseys. I think there was Derek Jeter bats and balls. And that's some stuff that he could sell.
3: That's true. He right.
2: can sell some of that memorabilia. Yep. I think there is value in a Derek Jeter signed jersey and a Derek Jeter signed bat. Maybe not the same value, right. but that is some stuff that he could sell if he'd like. You don't need three bats, three balls, and three jerseys. you know. So maybe the Yankees gave him multiple in the thought that he can sell a few of them and, and keep, keep one of something. each for right. himself. He's never going to make what he made from this ball, but... I know you have, those, there's kind of more to this ball thing.
3: Right, yeah, this kind of a, uh, a strange trifecta of uh, stories that you don't hear. I mean, you hear this with, like, the Bartman uh, way back when, and now Christian Lopez is yeah,
2: And uh, Mayer, Jeffrey Mayer right, from the 1996 right. ALCS, who famously stole the ball for a Derek Jeter yeah, home, home run. run. Yeah. Right.
3: With um, Two other guys, a guy named Shannon Stone, 39 years old, I guess the whole story goes, everyone's probably heard this now, too, about uh, he, Josh Hamilton got a fall ball, first tossed it to the ball girl, and he heard a cro- uh, voice from the crowd yelling, hey, can I get the next one for my kid? And he said, yeah, sure, whatever, being a nice guy. So he turns, throws the ball to the guy, the guy throws it a little short or whatever, the guy falls behind the scoreboard, falls 20 feet. Kids screaming for his dad, a six-year-old kid. Uh, The guy goes to the hospital and ends up passing away. And uh, I read a crazy, not crazy, but a real, you you think about the Shannon Stones family and stuff, but maybe you don't think directly about how it affects Josh Hamilton. I mean, he in effect.
2: I'm scared for Josh Hamilton.
3: I know because he was a big.
2: He's had a lot of substance abuse problems. Right. And I'm scared for his sobriety just because I know how devastated he must be. And he's a a good all-American boy, Josh Hamilton. He was the second pick in the draft behind Josh Beckett. And when he got to the minor leagues, he ended up developing a drug problem. A very serious drug problem. He was out of baseball. He rehabilitated himself. Ended up on the Texas Rangers. Won the home run derby in Yankee Stadium a few years ago. And has won an MVP since. And I know how devastated he is. I've I've heard him speak about this situation. I know he's very devastated. He is a born again Christian, so I mean without making any
3: commentary about religion one way or another. Hopefully he can lean on right, his faith. Right. He can lean on faith and yep. he said he'll pray for the family and, and stuff. And I've like that. Have read that
2: he's gonna reach out to them and maybe help them monetarily, pay for the funeral arrangements. Right. I think there was some talk that he might set up a scholarship for the kid. It's college. Right. And he has money, so he has he can help the family that way. He can never replace the man. But I think Josh Hamilton will do the best that he can. I, I just hope that he can handle the grief, like you said, maybe through his faith. I know one of the, the steps in the 12-step program is belief in a higher power. Uh, hopefully he can uh, lean on that step and, and maintain sobriety. There's no, I guess there's no reason to think he won't other than just knowing the power of alcohol and drug, drug abuse.
3: Right, and the third uh, story as far as this goes... And what's crazy to think about that is the Jeter ball kind of hit the guy in the lap. He didn't even have to catch it or anything. This guy was just – this is a foul ball that wasn't going to worth anything. It was going to be worth a story to his kid or whatever, something for his, him and his son to have. And a similarly probably worthless ball would have been a ball hit uh, at the Home Run Derby. They had another guy almost fell off the rafters. I don't have his name in front of me or anything. but uh,
2: I do. His name is Keith. Carmichael, and the story goes that Keith and his friends got a little greedy. They had already snagged balls from Robinson Cano and Adrian Gonzalez, so they already caught oh, okay. two balls, Okay. and they Prince Fielder was at the plate, and they decided to try to catch another one, and Keith basically almost met the same fate of Shannon Stone. Luckily, his brother and his friend were able to, to grab him, but if you go to our friends at sportsgrid.com, they have some really great pictures of it. And what he was doing was he was actually standing on a table and he leaned over to try to catch the ball and he lost it. He he was going down. Yeah. And, um, luckily his brother and his friend were able to snag him, but
3: I didn't realize they already had two balls. That's, that is a little bit greedy. And, uh, I would understand almost if you take that risk for the Derek Jeter ball, but not for a foul ball. I mean, Hamilton would have done the right thing. I'm assuming if he didn't, if the guy didn't just catch that one and let it fall behind the scoreboard, he would have thrown him another one or whatever. But I, I know you don't think these things. Even Hamilton, Josh Hamilton says, uh, "I do this all the time. If that type of thing didn't happen, I'd do it again the next time I go out there." Probably.
2: How many balls do you need
3: <laughs> for those that?
2: Yeah. You know, and I mean, these are grown men yep. with responsibilities. I don't know if this guy has a family, and I'm not. I'm not criticizing Shannon Stone in any way. No, I don't right. think he did anything wrong. But in light of that, you would hope that
3: it would at least be in that guy's head. A
2: guy like Keith Carmichael would would be smarter than that. Yeah, you know. And the last thing that Major League Baseball needed was another tragedy at one of their events.
3: I I think this. Is going to, there's going to be some sort of fences or something put up now, which is maybe unfortunate because people, that's part of the excitement uh, sitting near those in the nosebleeds on the walls there is to get those balls. But uh, I see them going the hockey route in s- some form or another.
2: And if you do go to sportsgrid.com, you'll see the picture of him standing on the table. And that's something that I'm shocked was allowed at the venue. Uh, maybe he just jumped up real quick and uh, no one was able to come over to him. But that's obviously a table that is meant to be for fans to put drinks and popcorn yeah. on, not to stand on and try to catch a ball. it's shocking.
3: You can't go to a uh, like a beer tent at a fair around here and stand on a table without probably 10 security guards or police officers telling you to st- I mean, not why would you be standing on a table, but it's shocking that's no one from security.
2: My guess is he probably just hopped up real quick. Real quick, yeah. You know, and... Uh, yeah. I wouldn't even been surprised if he had been warned already. I don't know what their method was to catch the other balls, but <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, God bless Mr. Stone and his family, and Josh Hamilton. Hopefully, everything works out. Yeah, for sure. My second thing, a little bit happier of a story. Don, you want to roll the uh, roll the sound?
3: Absolutely.
0: Got to bump forward now. Rapino gets a cross in. It's towards Wombach. Oh, can you believe this? Abby Wombach has saved the USA's life in this World Cup.
2: So there it is. Abby Wombach scores in stoppage time of extra time. Yep. 122nd the latest, second minute. The wow. latest goal ever scored in World Cup history. And the game of the week last week, Don, if you recall, was a preliminary round game between the U.S. women and Sweden. And we both picked U.S. And one of the reasons I mentioned that the U.S. would want to win that game is to so avoid Brazil, to Brazil right. in the quarterfinals. Uh, ultimately, the U.S. lost. The U.S. women lost the game. And they ended up playing the Brazilian women. And it was another incredible sporting event. It was Sunday. So for sports fans last weekend, you had Saturday afternoon with Jarek Jeter and then Sunday afternoon with the U.S. women's team. And they play Brazil. They play Marta, the best player in the world. Uh, It was one of these games where all the calls were going against the U.S. Early in the game, Marta was involved in kind of a a 50-50 ball uh, in the box. The U.S. defender was given a red card, so they were a man down. Marta was awarded a penalty kick, which Hope Solo saved. Right. But strangely, they were called for she some kind re- of interference, right. and it. the kick was kicked again, and, and she scored. And then Marta scored again later in the match in extra time, and Brazil was winning 2-1. to one. It seemed like the U.S. was going to lose, and Abby Wambach saved the day with the header and a beautiful, beautiful cross absolutely. by uh, the U.S. girl. I, I'm not sure of her name, but she made an absolutely splendid cross. And the U.S. went on to win the game in penalties. Uh, uh, Hope Solo made another beautiful save in penalties, the only save or miss. And the U.S. ended up winning the game. And now they're going to play tomorrow or Wednesday in the semifinals. And what happened was it saved the U.S. from their worst showing in the history of the Women's World Cup. They would have been eliminated in the quarterfinal round. They've never been eliminated before the semifinals. Uh, they wouldn't have had a chance to compete at this far in the tournament. And it would have been a big disappointment, especially how well the first two games went as the U.S. were uh, the best team, it seemed like. And now the field has really opened up. Right. Uh, Brazil is gone. Germany was upset by Japan. They get to play France in the semifinals and avoid Sweden until the final the team that did beat them, and probably the, the other best team remaining. So it's a very exciting time for women's soccer, and I have a question for you, Don. Okay. The next couple days, women's soccer is going to be a huge part of the sports world. There's not a lot going on. Right. Uh, baseball is having their all-star break. There's not going to be any baseball games Wednesday. It's going to be the main sporting event of the day. Do you think that women's soccer can build on this momentum? Do you have any interest? Do you have more interest in going to see Marta and Alex Morgan play for the Western New York Flash? Do you think women's soccer can find a spot in the American sports landscape?
3: I don't know if it's tied to hockey, so this might be uh, a bit local, but this Buffalo, New York is a very big hockey area for youth hockey. I know, I think it's like maybe the third in the country behind somewhere in Minnesota and... Maybe New York's... New York. No, maybe it's the second. I don't remember off the top of my head. But uh, soccer is also very big here. We have uh, a great venue in the Salem Salins. Salins, yep. Uh, there's two other smaller venues around here. Epic can, Center. Epic Center and, uh, and uh, Sportsplex. But there's a lot of places for kids. And I mean, there's outdoor fields everywhere. So there's a lot of places for kids to grow up, play hockey or play soccer. So the interest seems like it is there to some degree already. And if whether or not... It's going to build on it like as far as the country goes. I can't remember which game in particular it was, but one of the games already beat out Game 7 of the Stanley Cup as far as ratings go. So there is a lot of...
2: Yeah, this is going to rate huge. It's going to be a great week for women's sports, for women's soccer. Just like in 1999, right. their ratings were huge when Brandi Christensen famously won the Women's World Cup and took off her shirt. Right. But women's soccer kind of went away then. Yeah, as far as women's soccer Can they maintain it?
3: I'm not sure. Maybe. I mean, uh, Hope Solo, I was reading an article about her today. I kind of forgot she was the one that called out Brianna Scurry. Right, at the last World Cup. At the last World Cup, and uh, she was kind of made a villain a little bit then, and People she's are, redeemed herself. Yeah, people have changed on her. She's uh, been great. Uh, she's very pretty she's too. She's pretty. Yeah. Same with uh, Very marketable. Alex Morgan. Morgan, yep. Who isn't as market- marketable, but she's also very She's pretty. up and coming. Right.
2: She's she, the next big star of women's
3: soccer. So they do have marketable stars. Um the sport in general seems to have I watched an MLS game. I think it was Portland and Seattle this week. I, it was I fantastic saw it as well. It was a very good it game. It was just so back yep. and forth. It's none of the what people hate about soccer where it was very slow. I mean, I think the final was uh, 3-2, 3-2 or, yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, there is exciting soccer to be watched. It's hard to say because it's. I mean, it's not football season or anything like that. It right? will
2: be interesting to see in the long term if women's sports and women's soccer and soccer in general can build on the momentum that they are going to have coming out of this World Cup.
3: I think if any women's sports going to do it, it would be soccer. I think it's the second most watchable women's sport. Uh, first being tennis because that's yes. competitive. It's established. Golf is okay, but it's, it's, I think soccer is it. Basketball is clearly not it.
2: And hockey is, is decent as well. It's just, you know, it's it, again, it's a niche of a niche sport. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned Western New York and being a, a good place for soccer. Well, let's not forget that Ab- Abby Wambach is from Rochester, New York.
3: Right, right. Yeah,
2: so she was born right down the road. So one of the biggest stars in the world uh, was born in this area. She went on to play co- uh, college soccer at the University of Florida. And I'm not sure where she plays her club ball now, but I'm sure she's in the league that Alex Morgan and Marta play for the Western New York Flash. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where where this goes from here.
3: Yeah, real quickly, the, the unsung hero that we were talking about, the person that made that on the money cross, was Megan Rapinoe. And she did it using her left foot, which is not her dominant foot. She's a righty.
2: Bravo. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful pass.
3: My next, my number two point... Uh, as a dork, I love this, but Mike Commodore recently was picked up by the Red Wings, and I'm not sure why nobody else has picked this up on anywhere on his other teams, but fans have come out, and largely our buddy, Puck Daddy, Greg Wachinski has come yep. out and pleaded for him to wear the number 64 in honor of the Commodore 64. Um, Greg Wachinski said he'd donate $64 to the charity of Mike Commodore's Choice, and Fans of Puck Daddy's blog have actually picked up on this, and they've donated about, or pledged about $7,000 to this cause. I can't see why he wouldn't do it. Uh,
2: Do you want to explain the Commodore 64? Oh
3: yeah, it was, uh, I I think it came out around the time of the Nintendo, or right before it. But uh, a lot of games that people still like, like Ultima originated there, Gauntlet was an it was Commodore 64 game Bubble Bobble, which later came out for the Nintendo.
2: So it was a gaming system was, essentially. It
3: was, yeah, it was considered a home computer, kind of the way, like Famicom, which was the name for Nintendo in Japan. I think was supposed to be like a family computer, but I think the practical applications never really took off, but the gaming side of it really did. Um. Yeah. So from. There's apparently a lot of nerds out there that want this to happen, and I think it's I think it's pretty funny. And he seems like a funny guy. He's the one that came out in the robes and stuff. Way back one when. question and, about it. Yeah.
2: Do you think it puts unfair pressure on him in the sense that he's almost being forced to do it? Change his number, or you know, turn down charity.
3: Yeah, I guess it depends. Maybe. I guess that is a little bit like right, like you said, change it, or you're going to be turning down a charity.
2: But, I'm sure they would pledge the money regardless.
3: Yeah, may, yeah, certain guys don't care about their numbers. I know I heard a story about Tyler Myers saying 57 was just the number they gave him when he got called up and right. he just didn't care that much, so that's what he kept, and so far it's worked out for him. Commodore has worn 22, I think, in uh, Carolina and wherever else he's been. So I don't know what connection he has to that number. Maybe it doesn't mean much to him. Uh you would think someone would have suggested 6 Commodore 64 to him at some point in his past, and maybe he turned it down for whatever reason. So I don't know. That, that is an interesting question. Like, it's funny from my point of view because I'm an outsider, but if he's really in love with the 22 or maybe it's, it means something to him, then, yeah, maybe that is unfair pressure.
2: But I guess it's easily solved where he could come out and say, look, it, I'd love to be number 64, but 22 has been a part of my life. Right. I'd still love to donate $10,000 to charity. And I would encourage those who encourage me to still make their pledges. If not, I'll do it for them.
3: At the time the Commodore came out, or during its lifetime, it said sales totaled between 12.5 and 17 million units, making it the single best personal computing model of all time. Wow. I'm sure that's different now because of like uh, the MacBooks and iMacs and all that type of stuff, but at least according to Wikipedia uh, at the time, 12.5 to 17 million units.
2: That's incredible. Yep. All right, my third thing. Kind of an unlikely spokesperson for gay rights has emerged, and that's Michael Irvin. And I suppose he's only unlikely because I didn't realize that he has an older brother who is a gay man, and they have a really strong connection. Uh, you know, like most brothers do. And Michael Irvin is on the cover of July's Out magazine. And they have an article with him where he pleads for gay rights. And I'm proud of Michael Irvin. You know, congratulations. He was the 15th, Michael Irvin, the 15th of 17 children Wow. born to a preacher. Wow. He idolized his older brother who died of stomach cancer in 2006. And uh, Michael Irvin just wants to to honor the legacy of his brother. And I commend him for that. I was surprised to hear he was going to be an advocate for gay rights. But maybe a player like him, a Hall of Famer, coming out will make sports a more tolerant place for gay rights. Because, of course, sports has never necessarily been the most tolerant place for gays and gay rights.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I don't have much to add to that. It, it's like it, when you told me that that he—I guess he did the cover of a magazine—and uh, yeah, that I was—I was surprised. I don't know why necessarily. I was surprised. It just—he doesn't seem like that type. I don't know. Quote. I don't, I don't want to say anything that makes me sound like I'm putting him down
1: for it.
2: Quote from Michael Irvin: "I'm not gay, but I was afraid to even let anyone have the thought. I can only imagine the agony being a prisoner in your own mind for someone who wants to come out." If I'm not gay and I'm afraid to mention it, I can only imagine what an athlete must be going through if he's gay. So I think the main point, the main reason Michael Irvin did this was one, to honor his brother, and two, to try to make sports a more tolerant place for gays. And I'm sure that, hey, all the best to him.
3: Clearly it's not a tolerant place. No. You don't hear any stories about... uh, gay bashing or anything like that but you also don't hear any stories about players that are gay and there's thousands of professional athletes it just doesn't seem like the numbers work out that there wouldn't be a few that were gay
2: one more quote hopefully as we move forward we will get to a place where there's no way it's even considered it's just what it is and everybody can do what they do that's the ultimate goal
3: absolutely my last thing this week danny heatley and Martin Havlett have both been traded for each other, both to their fourth team, which both guys are practically, I mean, Healy's definitely a superstar, and Havlett's right on the cost, if he's not, and it makes you wonder, what's wrong with these guys? I mean, I know Havlett has had some injury history, maybe that's, all it is with him. Because Heatley's clearly the better player.
2: Well, let's break it down. Let's start with Heatley. So, Heatley's drafted by Atlanta. And we all know why right, right, Atlanta right. didn't work out. Dan- Daniel Snyder. Right. So, Atlanta is, gets to a point where they decide to trade him to Ottawa. Ottawa ends up in a situation, when the salary cap comes about, that they have three superstars. Daniel Alfredson, Jason Spezza, Danny Heatley. Now, wouldn't you... They decide, ultimately to keep Spezza and Alfredson and trade Heatley.
3: Heatley's the best of that group, probably still.
2: Uh, I would say Alfredson. Alfredson? Yeah, I would right say now? Alfredson. Well, maybe not right now. But when he was trading, But think I think he was, the he was maybe the best. Right, three. he's had
3: the worst career. Maybe Spezza is close now. I mean, he's about a point-per-game guy, I think.
2: But there's a lot of factors. Obviously, you can definitely say that he is a... All time Senator Alfredson Right You know he's their captain He's their guy So he's probably not anyone They consider trading And at the time Spezza was maybe just The younger cheaper option Right You know So then He goes to San Jose And after a couple of somewhat Failed years at San Jose Having great regular seasons And terrible playoffs Heatley was terrible this year In the playoffs Yep And maybe that's why They decided to move him Now you go to the Havlat side of things and Havlat, I believe, started in Ottawa. Yep. Uh, was signed as a free agent, I believe, by it's Chicago. To
3: a crazy long deal. And then
2: Chicago decided that they would rather have Marion Hosa than Havlat. Right. And moved Havlat to Minnesota. Yep. And now Minnesota, I guess, looking to, to make a change. They haven't been in the playoffs in quite a few years, they don't score many goals. Maybe found Heatley as the more attractive option because he's a natural goal scorer yeah
3: it's it's an interesting it's one of those trades that on paper it looks good for both teams you get like you said minnesota who has trouble scoring goals you get heatley who is just a natural goal scorer on the flip side you have san jose who as a team is known for struggling and choking in the playoffs and they played a little better this year but still they for a team that was just as good as any fell short of their ultimate goal and you have a player in Heatley who was as bad as anybody, like you said, as yep. far as what his reputation and what he'd done leading up to that point. Martin Havlitt's a pretty decent playoff player. Yes. If if not for injuries, I mean, he would obviously post better numbers, but there would be less question marks about him. So, I mean, this is just a number uh, uh, a situation where Havlitt goes to a... He's a good playoff player, goes to a team that needs good playoff players, and... Heatley's not a great playoff player, but he's a good goal scorer, goes to a team that needs goal scorers. So it's a huge trade in the hockey world. You don't see a lot of one-for-one superstar deals, but it might just work out for both teams.
2: Yeah, it will be an interesting storyline to watch this October when the NFL season gets together. So that's three things for today. Here's where we go from here in episode number 30 of the Sportscasters. We are going to take a quick pause and we will be back with Jane Levy. I really had a, a lot of fun recording this interview. I did it earlier. Jane was an absolute delight. I want to thank her again. Then we're going to come back. We're going to do something special and then break again to interview Damon Hack and close the show with Pick Four. So let's do it. We'll be right back with Jane Levy. <laughs> Our next guest is from Long Island, New York. She did her undergraduate studies at Bernard College before earning her master's degree at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Early in her career, she was a staff writer at Women's Sports and South magazines. She then went on to be a staff writer at the Washington Post from 1979 to 1988. She has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated and the New York Daily News. Her work has been anthologized in many collections, including Alex Bell's lasting Yankee Stadium memories. Her comic novel, Squeeze Play, was hailed by Entertainment Weekly as the best sports novel ever written about baseball. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, and The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood. This fall, she will be the guest editor for the Greatest American Sports Writing Series. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very distinguished Jane Levy. How are you doing today, Jane?
4: I'm um, great. How
2: are you? Doing very, very, very well. We're very excited to have you on today. And Where are you? We are in Buffalo, New York. Where are you? Oh,
4: I'm in I'm in uh, Trill, Massachusetts.
2: Is it hot there? Cuz it's very hot here today.
4: It's very hot, but I'm also by the water and it's blowing nicely.
2: Yeah, we're in uh we're we're this is what it's supposed to cool off in Buffalo fashion tomorrow though. So we're just trying to gut out gut out the day, you know what I mean?
4: I understand completely.
2: So I guess I want to start here because, all right, a, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was months now, it's at the beginning of the season, we had Alex Belf on the show, and he kind of turned us on to his anthology about lasting Yankee Stadium memories, and you contributed a piece to it, and when I read it, which is long before you were even on my radar as someone who might consider coming on the show, I had highlighted this sentence, and I just want to read it, and maybe we can start from here because it's something that I just... I really admire about your work, and it's, In my worldview, Celia Zelda, Zelda Fellenbaum and Mickey Charles Mantle were linked by something far more precious than proximity. They were stoic in the face of pain and selfless in the pursuit of pleasing others. And I guess I highlighted that because I think that is why we love sports, right?
4: Well, certainly why I love my grandmother. <laughs> But yes, yes. Um, uh, I would not have um, originally thought to put those two things in the same sentence. Those two souls, I mean. But um, different as they may have been, and my grandmother was a nice Jewish grandmother uh, who um, loved her children and her grandchildren more than she loved God, who took me to um, holiday services at the... uh, when the congregation moved up the up the street to the Concourse Plaza Hotel every fall for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and snuck me in with my uh, very poor fielder's glove, a uh, semi-Esposito model, which she had purchased for me out of the uh, uh, store window at Saks Avenue and Fifth Avenue. But really, you know, when I started to think about it, she and Mickey really did have a lot in common. Um, they really... Um, you know, they played hurt. Um, uh, I, I will never forget, you know, um, and it's fused in my memory, you know, the image of my grandmother injecting her leg with insulin because she had had too many uh, ice cream sundaes and sodas at Addie Vallon's, which was an ice cream parlor on 161st Street, where Joe DiMaggio, by the way, was known to go between uh, ends of a doubleheader now and again. Um, and Nikki, you know, uh, turning and trying to pivot on that right front damaged knee and, you know, practically falling down and sometimes really falling down because the weight of um, and the vehemence of his swing could not any longer be sustained by that right front leg. And, um, you know, but they were doing what they uh, needed to do. My grandmother continued to bake things that she couldn't eat, in order to have them uh, for her grandchildren, and Mickey Mantle continued to stay in the lineup um, even when um, you know a lesser uh, physical specimen would have asked out.
2: I think that leads us nicely into a few questions about the last boy. Last week, we had Jonah Carey on the show, and Jonah Carey is currently researching to write a book about his beloved Montreal Expos. Just a huge (laughs) Expos fan, and he's finally been able to do this project. It's probably a lifelong dream. Did you have similar feelings when writing the Mickey Mantle book, just growing up, having Mickey Mantle as your your favorite player and admiring him and comparing him to your grandmother and vice versa? Was this really like a, a project that almost was like a dream come true?
4: Um, or a nightmare, one or the other. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I think that um, it's very, very hard to write. Um, I mean, l- let me start over again. You know, uh, my hero, Red Smith, uh, the late, great um, sports editor, a sports writer, sports columnist for the New York Times, and before that the New York Herald Tribune used to joke and say, writing isn't hard, all you do is open up a vein and let it out drop by drop. And it is true that writers um, can often feel like they're being bled to death by the process. But, you know, let's be clear, writing is not exactly on a par with digging ditches or, um, you know, uh, it, avoiding IEDs in, in Iraq. So that, that said, um, by writing standards, this was a hard project for me because... Um, I couldn't be dispassionate about Mickey Mantle. And I finally decided that the only way uh, honestly to approach it was to acknowledge that. Meant having to um do the thing that we're educated as writers not to do, at least as journalists, which is not to use the upright pronoun. Um, I remember talking to Red Smith once about um his um you, whether he was going to write uh, an autobiography or, you know, or memoir. And um, I think he said that he made one sort of half uh, halfway attempt and, and saw all those uh, vertical pronouns and shuddered. Um, because if you're raised as a newspaper guy, the last thing you want to do or are supposed to do is use the I. And choosing to write... Um, this book this way meant using a whole lot of I and um, and yet it was the only honest way I could think of to write the story because you know what I mean I I you people always say who do you write for I you know I don't imagine a particular person or a particular segment of people it's not like I'm seeing people out in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium and going oh my God what are they gonna think um, but uh, to the extent that you think about the reader. Um, you You have an implicit bargain, which is you're going to tell them the truth and as um, best as you can. And um, so it would have been very dishonest and disingenuous of me to pretend a faux objectivity um, that I didn't possess. So I just decided to hell with it, <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll write the truth as best I can, which is he was my guy. I adored him growing up, um, and uh, there were parts of him that I identified with, even though I was a nice little Jewish girl tomboy on Long Island and not, you know, one of those guys in the street playing stickball or anything. But, you know, on a very, very um, personal, deep level, I identified with him. You know, I... um, I was born about a mile north of the stadium in a hospital that no longer exists. It's called Royal Hospital. I was born prematurely. And uh, I, was a, I was a runt, to put a not too fine a, a word on it. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was iffy for a while. And uh, I had a sense growing up of being kind of physically not, you know, cooked, all the way cooked. And I thought Mickey would somehow understand that, that he, too, struggled with a sense of being not physically what he thought he ought to be. And, um, uh, and of course, later we came to find out that that was true.
2: How long, if ever, did it take you to get comfortable with those eyes?
4: Um, well, actually, I owe it to a friend of mine who is also, um, by chance, my... Physician, who was also by chance a former book editor at the Washington Post. Uh, her name is Carol Horn, and she came back from a trip to Florida where she had seen this play. And this is, again, it's an unlikely um, uh, connection to make to Mickey Mantle. But she'd seen a play by uh, a playwright named Doug Wright, the gay man who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book Paul, uh, for a play called "I Am My Own Wife," and it's a play about. Um, a gay, uh, a man who, um, wants to write about a transvestite in, uh, first Nazi and then Stasi Germany who survives both horrendous regimes, uh, despite being, um, completely open about who, uh, he slash she is. Um, and, um, this was a guy who set out to write uh you know, a pay on to pay into his his hero heroine and comes to find out that he she was a collaborator and that's how he she survived these horrible regimes. And so, um, it was uh uh a revelation um to see how he chose to handle it. And after um, you know, struggling and struggling, having I mean, six years of writers, block a friend of Doug Wright, said to him, you know, don't try to write an objective ordinary history. Write what you know, write about your love affair with Charlotte von Malsdorf. And that's what he did. He ended up writing a play in which he became a character trying to seek out um Charlotte von Malsdorf's real self. And as far as Charlotte von Malsdorf might be as a character from Mickey Charles Mantle Um, Nonetheless, the advice was perfect because it gave me permission to use that dreaded I word and to use it in the service of telling um, and reporting a story that I couldn't uh, have reported honestly any other way.
2: I kind of have one more question about I before we get into into the meat of the book, and that's because I had this written down for later, but since we're on the topic... One thing I've grown to admire about you as a writer, as I've researched for this interview and kind of been more familiar with you over the last couple of months, is how well you can write about family without too many eyes. I, I love to write. I, I have two younger brothers, and when they both graduated high school, I wrote a piece about them, and I, f- I really struggled with keeping myself out of it. And as I read your piece on Grantland, about your father, I kind of admired how how well you can tell the story, uh, minimally putting yourself into it, despite the fact that you're such a big character in it. And um, maybe we can just talk a second about that piece in Grantland and, and your kind of ability to to be able to write about your family, like in your grandma and the Yankee Stadium piece and your father and the Grantland piece, but you, you're very talented at kind of keeping the eyes out of it. Is that just kind of from being hammered into it as a newspaper writer? Um, that is a lovely thing to
4: say. I've never heard it before. I've never had anybody point it out to me. Um, never even thought about it. Um,
2: It's just something I've struggled with, you know, as a writer, and that I can admire in your writing.
4: Uh, I, 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 I'm stammering on that I, um, I, you know, I think my, my feeling, it, it must be just purely unconscious, because, um, I, probably was concerned there that there are too many eyes already and maybe that's what's kept them in check um I, I really don't know and now i'm going to be self-conscious about saying that word for the rest of the program
2: <laughs> all right let's get back to mannell for a second you decided to go with a pretty unique format and that is zeroing in on 20 days of his life Was it difficult to pick out the days? uh, Did the the days kind of jump out? Why 20? Was that just kind of what happened to be, or did you specifically go hunting out 20 days?
4: No, I didn't specifically go hunting out 20 at all. Um, In fact, I probably would have liked it to be fewer, but um, what I did want to do was pick days that seemed to me to be occasions um for elucidating um larger themes in his life and um i i mean i basically wanted to you picked each date because you know i knew i couldn't do every home run that mattered or every clutch hit or every injury and that writers and uh Critics and mostly Mantle fans would quibble with uh, with those I chose and those I left out. So I tried to explain up front very clearly that I, I knew that that was the case, but I, I chose them, some of them very well known events in his life, like the facade home run off Bill Fisher and against Kansas City in May of '63, or um, the uh, the the tape measure home run in Washington D.C. a decade earlier, April 53, where the term of our tape measure home run came into being, because um, he did something nobody had ever done before. Um, but I also picked odd dates, like you know the day his father died, um, and um, uh, the day um, that uh, I mean I picked the day that uh, he um came uh, it came of age as it were, in spring training of fifty one when he hit two home runs at a meaningless um exhibition game against the california Southern California Trojans uh when the Yankees played a west Coast swing that spring instead of training in in Florida um but each one of them gave me an opportunity to develop um uh, something that I thought was key. Uh, either in his character or in his psychological evolution um, that, you know, uh, became a, almost a meditation in, in, in each of those cases.
2: The New York Times did a really nice review of the book, and one thing that they mentioned is something that you just mentioned in that answer, and that was that death uh the quote The quote from the article is, "Death is in fact, the unexpected theme of this biography, and you mentioned writing about the day that mickey Mannell's father died and in the book, you kind of talk nicely about uh, Mickey kind of realizing uh what Lou Gehrig felt when he made his uh speech when uh, the day that his number was retired. Do you agree with uh the New York Times assessment that death is uh, an unexpected theme of the biography?
4: Who am I to disagree with the New York Times? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, um, Keith Olbermann did a a wonderful, generous review, despite having spotted, along with several other people, by the way, some factual errors that I have corrected in subsequent editions. Um, I I like writing about memory um, a lot because, I mean, it's, it's the one... Um, sport if you will that that you can 't be a spectator and you're you 're an active participant in one way or the other uh in what you remember what you choose not to remember um, and so um you know that that really is the subject of the book because it you know mickey is one of those he 's a talisman he's 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 how um people remember their childhood, whether they remember it accurately or not is an entirely other matter. But, you know, touching something he, you know, rode on, uh, a, a cap that he might have wore once, a golf bag he, you know, he might have played with once. Um, people pay exorbitant amounts of money for these things because somehow in touching those, you know, uh, tactile objects, they feel not just in contact with him, but, but, you know, he becomes a conduit to their own childhood. And what, for many people, seemed to be a better time, uh, not just in their lives, but in, you know, in America.
2: The number I read was 563 interviews for this book, but my guess is, if I know anything about writers and writing, is there was probably a 564th and a 565th that you didn't get that you wish you could have. Was there anyone that you did an interview for the book that you think that if you would have been able to have access to them would have made it a better book? Maybe even uh, a worldly figure like Lou Gehrig or someone like that.
4: Um, I don't think he was going to be
2: available. No, he was um, not available at all, um, but.
4: Uh, There are some guys that I really wanted to talk to, you know, peers on that superstar level who either were not willing or were not able to participate. Um, uh, Stan Musial, who was actually a good friend of his, um, was not well and not available. Couldn't get through to Hank Aaron. Um, Willie Mays uh, stiffed me a couple of times. He was engaged in the process of, I guess, writing his own book with Jim Hirsch. And Jim's a a good friend of mine, and he did, a, I thought, an an exemplary job. But, um, uh, you know, I really would have liked to have been able to ask Willie um, about that pivotal, you know, career-altering moment when he hit that, um, uh, what they call in baseball, a duck fart uh, between Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle in the fifth inning at uh, Yankee Stadium, game two of the 51 World Series. And uh, when Mantle, on instructions from Casey Stengel, took off in hot pursuit, um, and he was 19 and he could outrun the wind then, and uh, Casey had said, Go for anything. And, uh, you know, he said it not polite language because uh, people didn't worry about political correctness then, but, you know, go for anything. DiMaggio's heel is hurting him, and so he took off in pursuit of this ball, which, depending on you know the photographs and the angle that you were sitting at um, in the stadium, appears to have been clearly his ball. Though the unwritten rule in baseball is always, if the center fielder can get there, it's his ball, and he doesn't have to call for it. and He doesn't have to call you off. He just has to get there. And so Mantle, who was pretty new at this outfield play. and certainly, knew at right field, um, you know, tried to stop his own moment, considerable momentum, um, and caught his right spike in um, the cover of a drain um, that was embedded in the sod. There were two of them in the outfield at Yankee Stadium, with what pit, passed at the time for you know infrastructure. <laughs>
1: um,
4: there were two drains, and they were about six inches depending on people's description, about six inches in diameter with like a steel, you know, or iron bars across it. And there was a black rubber cover, and the uh, bat boy, Frankie Prudeni, told me about this. Um, there was a cover. There was like a hard rubber cover that you were supposed to stomp on to make it, you know, closed. And the groundskeeper had forgotten to close it that day. Um, and so um, he caught his spike on that and um ripped his knee apart, um, to such an extent that no one had the diagnostic ability or tools um to say how badly he had injured himself. And um I I spent a lot of time doing what might if it doesn't sound too highfalutin, you might call a forensic medical case history for him, trying to figure out what did he do? What could cause somebody To lose control of their bodily functions. Because when I met Mickey in '83, when I was a reporter at the Washington Post, and I went to meet him in Atlantic City, um, he told me right then that he knew lying in the grass that he would never be the same. And he told me that he had soiled himself. You know, so what could cause such pain to make you lose control of bodily functions? And I took all the information I could find and the few photographs of x-rays that I could find and interviews with everyone who was on the field that day, with the exception of Willie Mays, uh, who I could find who was still alive. And it's pretty clear that, you know, what he did is he blew out his knee. He tore not just the cartilage, not just, you know, people speculated all over the place, and the, the diagnoses, you know, were multiple uh, and contradictory. Um, but it's pretty clear that he, you know, uh, tore his ACL, his MCL, and, and the, uh, you know, uh, medial meniscus um, cartilage. And you know, there was it was just coming into to vogue sports medicine back then. And, and no, Dr. Just, James
2: Andrews, right?
4: No, Dr. Andrews, but there was a guy named Don Dan Donahue uh, at the University of Oklahoma, who's widely considered to be the father of sports orthopedics, and he had just coined the term, terrible triad, to describe that injury, that, that constellation of injuries, you know, that now, you know, people talk about as if, well, it's no big deal, you know. So you have knee reconstruction surgery, you'll be back and good as new in a year. Um, and had Mickey Mantle, you know, lived uh, um, two decades later, he probably would have gone and had a knee reconstruction, and, you know, then there wouldn't have been all these what-ifs just as if Sandy Koufax had, you know, been 10 years later. Uh, He probably would have had Tommy John surgery, and, you know, God knows what he would have done. But um, these guys lived and played and endured before we had the vocabulary, much less, uh, you know, the technology to fix these things.
2: I don't know about you, but I had the most fun I've ever had watching baseball in a long time on Saturday. And I thought a lot as I was watching the game and uh, watching Derek Jeter accomplish what he did. I thought a lot about your the title of your book in the End of America's Childhood," and I wondered if you were maybe somewhere watching the game thinking that maybe childhood in a small way was reborn that day in Yankee Stadium to some extent. Um, any so thoughts on that
4: i uh, that's a little bit too lyrical for me um, I was glad to see Jeter do that. It reminded me a little bit of that day that Mantle had in May of 68 when he went 5 for 5 and he had deterior- deteriorated visibly and um you know ominously by then and he was just he was just hanging on. Um he was just thirty two but um you know five years younger than Jeter is now um, but he was a very very old thirty two but he had this magical day where he went five for five uh, and i I don't have a line in front of me but you know Frank Howard, who played first base that day for the um uh, Washington Senators described how hard he hit these you know uh these five baseballs um Uh, You know, and just on the screws is, you know, uh, Hondo's description of each and every one of them. Um, But, um, you know, Jeter had a day like that in which you remember those guys when they could still do it all. Um, Remains to be seen whether that day for Jeter is predictive of of a renaissance or whether, you know, we'll look back on it Uh, the way people look back on that five for five day for Mantle and say, ah, yeah, there was a taste of who he had been, but he couldn't sustain it.
2: How did you embrace and enjoy writing this book and creating a Kindle edition with audio and video enhancements? Did you have a role in picking the video and audio out? And did you enjoy doing that with this book? Kind of the first book that you've written with this new electronic reading that has kind of become popular in the last few years?
4: Um, I had done an, the audio for the Kofax book, um, and I'm kind of a ham, so yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, and I think it would have been hard for anybody uh, other than a woman, um, and maybe other than me, to read the first line of this book. Um Pertaining to uh, my mother being deflowered in in uh, Atlantic City on her honeymoon, um, but uh, so I enjoyed doing that. The you know the, the the electronic technology is changing so fast, and the appetite for it is changing so fast. When we started working on this, the people at Harper Collins in the electronic division were still struggling to uh you know uh, to see whether the platform existed to be able to use all the clips um that you know that we were able to assemble and i think uh you know in another year um it'll be uh, you know much more um it'll be much easier on them for sure um because they had to work really hard to produce this um it's kind of it's kind of cool to be able to, you know. It's basically like the old Warner Wolf. Let's go to the videotape. Only, it's, you get to do it yourself about your own writing, in the middle of it.
2: Yeah, and you know, I actually read The Last Boy. I read the uh, the Kindle version, and I happened to get lucky one day as I, I kind of as we were kind of getting this together, and I just went on to the Kindle website, and they were giving the uh, giving the enhanced version away for free. Um, and then I later stumbled upon them giving the a version of it away for free on in the iTunes as well and uh, I let my listeners know um does it make you cringe to think that people have gotten the book for free through these means, or does it just make you happy to know that it's been spread out through another means in this electronic reading
4: oh i was I was asked uh, how I felt about this in my I was advised that this was a good promotional deal And, you know, so So, you know, I was fine with it um, You know, I, 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 I fervently believe that writers don't write for free <laughs> so, right. uh, But I, you know, um, I think a promotion like that Was just a fine thing for them to do It was okay by me
2: What do you think of Twitter? I couldn't find you on there so have um, you yet to embrace I it?
4: I, I take pride in I, mean, I feel a little bit like uh you know waiting for Godot though that's grandiose I suppose um I have Twitter followers and I've never written anything um which I take pride in um I I suppose it was um not um, self promoting uh to you know issue uh, it but um and obviously a whole bunch of people and writers and athletes and all kinds of people are out there tweeting this and that but you know i i i as a writer i fundamentally believe that the notion that you can write anything of significance in 140 characters and unless it's you know i do is 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 ridiculous i mean it's it's reductive and um it's antithetical to the premise that, you know, explanation and explication matter. And so <laughs> this is my one-woman protest.
2: <laughs> is Grantland the exact kind of website maybe then that you've been waiting for, a website that focuses on long-form writing and really brings long pieces to the, inter- to the sports Internet in a way that maybe hasn't been done before?
4: Well, I mean, you know, a lot of those kinds of like, having having edited the uh, uh, best sports stories of 2011, um, I was very impressed, uh, not to mention bleary-eyed, having read all the long-form submissions that were forwarded to me, and those were a fraction of the ones that um, the series editor Glenn Bunched Stout out, yeah. read. Um, uh, so the long form is alive and well on the on the internet, and a lot of it appears in you know, places that uh, you, you know to go look, like ESPN.com. Um, but they're you know, you know they spring up all sorts of places. Texas Monthly, and there was a beautiful piece about the last Mustangs um, that I selected for the book, and there was one about. Uh, uh, a cauliflower ear that, you know, showed up in a, a publication called Sports Literate. Mm-hmm. Um, Men's Journal, you know, often has really good long-form um, sports writing. You know, we're we, we not seeing it anymore Is a place that it was pioneered, which is uh, Sports Illustrated, you know, one when they used to have Frank DeFord writing those, 20,000 word um, pieces I still remember the one you know he wrote about Jimmy Connors taking love on the rise as you know maybe the uh, one of the best if not the best long form sports writing uh, you know magazine sports writing uh, pieces I've ever read
2: did you enjoy the process of uh, being the guest editor of the uh, 2011 best American sports writing series
4: yeah 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 I did and um uh you know i um i'm I'm sort of ex, you know i uh, nonplussed at the extremes of extreme sports and how much of the copy was about extreme sports, which I have uh less patience with than perhaps one is supposed to have you know I just kind of feel like if you have to get dumped on top of a mountain by a helicopter to see whether you can ski down you know from an altitude where you can't really breathe. Maybe you could pick you know maybe people need to don't need to court danger so much and 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 maybe they could find some other better use for that energy, but there seems to be uh a a need to court so danger uh maybe because you know the caveman years have so receded but it's uh it's uh, it's certainly a privilege to be able to live a life of um such wealth and opportunity that you can spend your time thinking of ways you might kill yourself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Where do you go from here as a writer? Is there a project that you uh, are interested in pursuing? Is there another book on the way? Are you going to consider being a part of the rebirth of newspapers? What is it that you'd like to do in the future? Is, is there a rebirth of newspapers? But I think that there is with the, the iPad and um, newspapers kind of embracing being a part of the iPad and I don't know if you have an iPad and or have had a chance to read newspapers on there, but I think it's it's an opportunity for newspapers to kind of have a rebirth. And I, I love reading newspapers on the iPad. I love reading Sports Illustrated on the iPad. I think that's another example. You mentioned that Sports Illustrated doesn't have the long form anymore. Well, they actually have used their iPad edition to kind of put some more longer form journalism in there.
4: Yeah. Um. No, I do have an iPad. Um, I'm I'm only on strike against Twitter. It's not um, (laughs) not against iPad. Um, I don't know that I agree with you that there's a renaissance of of newspapers yet. Um, I'm not sure that the the old dinosaur has yet figured out how to shed its old form and, and embrace a new one that makes it, Viable. Some um, papers
2: are better than others, I guess.
4: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but they were all really behind the power curve. Um, but um, I don't know what I'm going to do next um, other than uh, edit and update the paperback edition of The Last Boy, which will be out in October, just in time for another World Series.
2: Awesome. I, I want to recommend the NAP. I don't know if you have it, but it's called Newspapers and um it's fantastic because it kind of contains within it all the newspapers basically in the world Africa asia Europe, North America, the United States and you can find my brother's going to Yale next year in a hockey scholarship, and uh we we read the Yale newspaper all the time together and it's a fantastic app it's called Newspaper. so I encourage yeah, you yeah, a friend it of up. mine
4: who's a an investigative journalist actually turned me on to that so um I'm, I'm
2: there with you on that one. Nice. Yeah, that's a beautiful app. Well, Jane, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate you appearing on the Sportscasters. And maybe we can do it again once I've had the chance to look through the uh, 2011 Best American Sports Rating Series and we can talk about some of the pieces in detail then.
4: I'd be, I'd be delighted to do it. I'm sorry for the interruption. Apparently no, there's a, a hornet's nest by my front door that I need to go get rid of. So um, that was the commotion. Well, I'm not and surprised.
2: Yeah. I'm not surprised that I was the only one pining for a little bit of your time today. I <laughs>
4: well, <laughs> the bees aren't getting it, believe me. Anyway, uh, um, be careful thank you very much, them. Steve. Thank you very Take much. Care. Yep. Yeah, bye-bye.
2: I want to thank Jane Levy, an absolutely beautiful, graceful, distinguished guest, one of the best in the history of the sportscasters. And that brings us to this small segment in today's show. There really isn't necessarily a book club update today because we just kind of closed out our latest book, The Last Boy, and Jane was nice enough to come on and and talk all about that book. And I hope you enjoyed that. And I'm sure we'll pick another book sometime at the end of the month. ...to read during August, to get ready for football season. I think it's probably due time to read a football book, huh? Absolutely. So we'll do that. We'll probably do that next week or the week after that. Give, give a little bit of time to breathe. What we're going to do today, as kind of a special part of episode 30, is Don and I are going to present our list of our top five favorite guests in the first 30 episodes of the Sportscasters. there's one thing that the Sportscasters does well, it's book guests... And that's a big tribute to Don, who's usually the guy (laughs) behind the scenes booking all the guests. Yeah, I can't
3: stop booking guests.
2: Yeah, so uh, we are going to go back and forth with our top five. And then we have a little clip for our number ones.
3: My uh, guest booking so far has been me sending you text messages going, Hey, this guy just did this. Maybe we should (laughs) have him on. And I don't think any of them have been on yet. So either I'm aiming too high or too low or something. But uh, my first... Guest, I'm going to throw out an honorable mention. And first of all, let me just say we've had some media giants on here. Like it's still amazing to me some of the guys like Peter King, Jason Lockeford, Joe Poznansky and maybe some of them made your list. My list is more about just people I've had the most fun talking to. My honorable mention I'm going to throw out there real quick is the Ed on episode 13. <laughs> he <laughs> doesn't add a lot of information wise, but uh, he's a hilarious guy. Uh, he made us laugh probably more than any guest on there. But anyway. My number five. I'm going to go with John Butchergrass. Before we started the podcast, if you told me which sports writer would I most like to talk to, it probably would have been John Butchergrass. I love hockey. There's no better hockey guy to talk to than John Butchergrass. He's been on episodes five and fifteen.
2: Yeah, and basically, I I, I thought another element to this could be I could give a little bit of a backstory to how the him? connection with the guest came about. And Butchergrass basically was just one tweet. Hey, would you like to be on? And he wrote back and he said, sure, I'm on vacation this week. Tweet me next week. I did. He gave me his email and bam, there he was. So he was really easy. And then the second time he was on, I actually called him personally. And uh, he agreed to be on. My number five is one of the media giants that you mentioned. And it's Peter King. Uh, I don't think I've ever been as excited as I was when I found out that Peter King was going to be on. It just I think it was our biggest... It was our biggest catch so far. Absolutely, and when I when I was reeling him into the boat and I hooked him, I, it just it was an incredible feeling, and it was probably the greatest feeling I've had around in and around the sportscasters. And I think I called you right away. Yeah, I called my mom right away. It was a Dairy Queen. He had over <laughs> he has over five hundred thousand followers on on Twitter, and I knew that him being on, if he were to tweet it, would give us a, a boost. And he was nice enough to tweet his appearance. So that's Peter King, and basically, again, another instance of tweeting him a few times, and his tweet back was, "Okay, what do I have to do?" And uh, that's we went from there. And what I'll say about him, real quick, is
3: sometimes you get guests, and I mean they're probably skeptical because of it's a po- the podcast and just the nature of it in general. Um, he started off guarded when he answered the phone a little bit guarded, but by the end of it, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. So he's a he's a great pick and. Obviously an honor to have him on. Uh, my number four. I said I love to talk hockey. Uh, there's no one better. <laughs> Maybe at, he's a uh, a podcast guy more than, Dam- er, than Butcher Grass. So my number four is Greg Wachinski, the Puck Daddy. He's been on episode two, nine, and 28. He's your man if you want to talk pucks. He does his own podcast too, so check that out.
2: Yeah, you know, he was a guy that when we started this, I just knew I wanted to have on the show. Uh, Being the hockey fans that we are, I figured if you're going to have a podcast and you're going to be legitimate and talk about hockey, you have to talk to the Puck Daddy. And uh, I actually don't recall my first – I think – again, I think it was Twitter. I think I followed him on Twitter. I asked him, and he follows us on Twitter. He's always been real accessible with DMing uh, back and forth, and he's been really easy to get. And I really appreciate the connection that we have with him and, and with Puck Daddy. My number four is Dave Damashek. He probably should be higher than this. He's been on episode four, nine, and 20. He is a big reason why I think we're here. I think we For both sure. yeah. have definitely been influenced by his work and his pioneering in the podcast industry. And he's a really he's a good friend. He, he, he probably makes us feel like we're better friends with him than we really are because he just <laughs> he's just a nice guy. Yeah. He doesn't forget stuff about you. Right. You know, he remembers when he talks to you, what he talked about, and he's always really easy to talk to and he was nice enough to come on the very first time was when the Steelers were in the Super Bowl and he brought a really big piece to our Super Bowl show because I wouldn't have wanted to have anyone else talking about Steelers football than Dave Damashek.
3: Absolutely. My number three might be a bit surprising. It would be hard for me to hide the fact that I'm not the biggest baseball guy in the world, but one of the guys I've had more fun talking to than almost any of our other guests is Alex Belth. Uh, First of all, if you can have a guy on it, you could talk 20 minutes about the the behind-the-scenes workings of the Big Lebowski. That's awesome in itself, but he's just a real accessible, uh, down-to-earth. It's one of those interviews where at the end of it, it just felt like you had a conversation, and it didn't feel like you were... Searching for questions or anything like that. He was real simple, easy to talk to guy. Seems like any any guy you would hang out with on a Friday night.
2: I actually discovered Alex because he was on Joe, or Jonah Carey's podcast. Oh, yeah? And because he was on there, I researched him a little bit, and I reached out through email, asked him if he would be on. He agreed. And he's another guy who's been a really nice, nice friend to us, uh, very kind, very like you said, accessible and fun and funny. And he's had a really, really incredible, interesting career. My number three is Richard Deitch. Richard Deitch is a guy that I kind of leveraged by saying that we were from Buffalo because I knew he had a connection to Buffalo. I don't know if he was born here necessarily. He might have been, but he did go to the university at Buffalo. And he's very fond of the city. And he's been on episode three and episode 14 and he will be on again soon. I promise you that. And what I love about Richard Deitch is he's really good to us on Twitter and nothing could maybe illuminate that point more than just this past week even though he had no connection to episode number 29 he tweeted about episode 29 oh I didn't see that yeah he said something like uh, the sportscasters couple hardworking guys from Buffalo had on Mike Harrington and AJ Delirio and he gave a link and we got like 12 or 15 extra followers out of it and it was just really nice of him, unsolicited, very nice of him to do. And he's always been that way. You can tell he's a guy who's on our show that I think listens to the show when he's not on as well. And mm-hmm. I love that about Richard Deitch. So he's my number three.
3: He's he's one of those guys, too, that uh, you could tell you have more than just a passing acquaint. I mean, I shouldn't say that. He's an acquaintance. But he's been good to the show in that, like... He'll bust your balls on Twitter and stuff. He's yeah. told us a few times, like jokingly said to you before on Twitter, like "What am I, your PR guy?" Yep. And, but I mean, he's always been cool about it. He hasn't shied away from us or anything after that. And uh, yeah, he's a good choice. He's a nice guy. Uh, my number two is AccuScore Zach. He may not carry the the weight or like the clout that some of these other guys do, but again. Maybe better to us than anybody that we 've had on the podcast he 's ready at a moment 's notice to bail us out if somebody else can 't come on yep uh, super nice guy he knows his golf he 's got his evil computers for football, baseball, everything else we 've had him on episodes seven, twelve or seven part two <laughs> when we did that. 10, 11, 19, 25, and the Masters in U.S. Open podcast. So he's always been really helpful. Another guy, him and Alex Belth, I jokingly said to Steve, the only guys that will openly swear in a podcast. <laughs> Not that we mind, but just shows how down-to-earth, normal, regular guys they are. And real quick, before I forget, uh, Alex
2: Belth was on episode 24 and the baseball bonus show. You know, what I love about AccuScore Zach is I can't wait for him to be on in the future because he's just going to be all that much... More fun of a guest when, and that was horrible English, I'm sorry about that, <laughs> when football season is going on and the evil computers are doing what the evil computers were made to do, and that is analyzing college football and the NFL, he's going to be a great guest. And I really see him being a part of the show for a long time to come. Yeah,
3: he offered too what was potentially the silliest moment on the podcast It never was because we tied that bet. I mean, that would have been... Yeah.
2: Was, <laughs> yeah, incredible that we bet. <laughs> we bet his evil computers and ended up tied. My number 2 is Joe Pisanski, episode number 6. He's a guy I'm chasing right now to try to make a return appearance. He has recently started his own podcast which he calls The Podcast. He was probably the first giant in the sports media world to come on the show. Yeah. And I didn't know a lot about him before even though I should have, and because of that, I know so much more about him now. And his, read, his writing has been a must-read for me, and I really have become a better sports fan because of the knowledge that I've earned in reading Joe Poznanski's columns, which are always very long and very thoughtful and very insightful, and I'm waiting, Joe, for that iPad review you've been promising because <laughs> I'm dying to hear what he thinks about the iPad, but Joe Poznanski easily could have been number one on this list from episode six, can't wait to have him on again. We'll kick our number one off with an audio clip.
3: Uh, why? What, you said the next guest. What exactly does that mean? I, if I'm the best friend, then that assumes that I would be the first guest. <laughs> you're the closer.
2: Yeah, you're like the Mariana Rivera, the sportscasters.
3: Oh, you know how that sounds to me—patronizing
2: and condescending. <laughs> you think I'm a dummy? What's wrong you're, with Mariana but, Rivera? You're
3: last, who am I following? Tell me who I'm following.
2: You're following Peter King. Who's that? <laughs> the only reason you're following Peter King is because he was available at four o'clock Eastern. You were not available till nine fifteen Eastern.
3: You don't tell my personal business. You don't air my dirty laundry like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not Peter King, uh, uh, sitting up on uh, on high, looking down at the rest of the sports world on my schedule. I'm a working man. That is working man, Doctor Funny Dave Damashek. Great choice. Um, a lot of why I chose him. Isn't even so much about what he does for us on the air, but it's a little bit he does after the air. I don't think we've ever discussed this before, but Dave's the type of guy that we've had him on episodes four, nine, and 20. And after each one of those, he sat with us without asking and just chatted with us for 20 minutes, a half hour after we stopped recording for the podcast and would just give us advice on how to make a podcast and how to make it work and how to be better. How to be better at it, right. And uh, just in all, like Steve said, he might he might just be the type of guy that makes you feel like you're more of a friend to him than you are. But he's great at it, and he's never been anything but good to us. And he's great on air too.
2: He's he's hysterical. He's a guy that I think could be president. Just <laughs> you know, just the way he makes people, people feel. And right. you know, whenever I I introduce him to someone and say you got to listen to Dave Damischek's work, they they always come back to me and are blown away by how. How fun he is to listen to and to be a part of. And I hope his NFL.com podcast is going to be a, a great success. And he's another guy, like I said, that will be a part of this podcast for as long as it's a podcast. Absolutely. Dave Damaschek will always be a guy who will check in with us periodically. My number one? Yeah, he did. I remember that game. Just dominated, made the National Player of the Year look like a toy. And uh, I just knew he was going to be a great player. And then. You know, he goes to the Clippers, and he hurts his knee, and all anyone is saying is, oh, no, uh, the curse of the Clippers. But, man, he's been just fantastic this year. And, you know, there was an interesting comment I want to ask you about that. I think it was Charles Barkley made during the uh, slam dunk contest. He said, wait till this kid learns how to play basketball. Right now, he's just playing on his talent. What do you think he meant by that? Do you think it's true? And how much upside do you think uh, Griffin still has?
4: You know, I think it's I think it's partly true. I think in terms of shooting, it's true. But I mean, if you look at his assist numbers, they're really strong. I mean, he's not just he. It's easy to think of him that way, to think of him as kind of this one trick pony who's just dunking over people. But I actually think his game is is more polished and more sophisticated. I heard that comment.
2: I I didn't feel like Charles was giving him quite enough credit. That's Lee Jenkins, the great Lee Jenkins. My number one guest. He's been on episode number seven, part one, episode sixteen, and episode twenty three. And I think I mentioned it at the top of episode 23. Here's what I love about Mr. Jenkins, and he hates when I call him that. (laughs) He likes to be called Lee, but I just have so much respect for him. And that is the last time he was on, it was game one of the NBA Finals, and he was in Dallas to cover the NBA Finals or Miami, wherever it started. I can't recall. I think Miami. And I called him that day and said, hey, is there any way you can give us 15 minutes today? I know I'm sure you're busy. No problem. When do you want to do it? You tell me the time. What's best for you? He's super accommodating. He's a very knowledgeable guy. He's a great writer. And one of the cool things about him is after the first time he was on, we had mentioned to him that Zach had done, the some, yeah, yeah, had done some work right. with the evil computers. And he actually texted me out of the blue and asked for more information. And he used that as part of his story. And it was so cool. It was the Carmelo Anthony trade. Yeah, the Carmelo Anthony trade. And it was so cool that he kind of involved us. And and I felt so good to have helped Zach that way. And I love having Lee Jenkins on. I can't wait to have him on again. He's from San Diego. And he's so great to us. And I actually talked to a PR guy from Sports Illustrated. And he was surprised how accessible Lee has been with us just because – I think it's something we've earned. Uh, Dave Damischik might do this for anyone, maybe, maybe not. But I think we've earned the respect of Lee Jenkins, and I'm really proud of that. And I love to have him on, and it's always a thrill. And that's why he's my number one guest.
3: Yeah, real quickly too, the SI guys in general—not to take anything from ESPN guys or the Yahoo guys. I mean, who have all? Everyone who's been on has been pretty great. Like 99% of the people we've had on have been excellent. But SI <laughs> as, <laughs> as a whole has been fantastic.
2: Yeah, we've had so many guests from SI. Luke Wynn, who could have been mentioned. John Wertheim has been on two times. Stu Hackle from the hockey side. Sarah Kwok from the hockey side. Obviously, we've had Peter King. We've had Joe Piznanski. Lee Jenkins. Yeah. The it's list goes on excessive. and on. And next, we will have Damon Hack That's right. from Sports Illustrated. So... With that in mind, we should stop here. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it looking back at some of the other guests. If you have a a favorite guest or two and you want to let us know, don't be afraid to email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with one of those awesome Sports Illustrated, Illustrated sportsillustrated.com and golf.com guys, Damon Heck. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf and the NFL for the New York Times. Today, he's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, covering golf and the NFL. He recently became a father to not one not two, but three beautiful baby boys. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the great Damon Hack. How are you today, Damon?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
2: How is life with triplets?
0: Interesting. I'll tell you that. They're uh, one month old, and they're, they're beautiful and, and interesting already. They're different personalities. Uh, they look different. They're fraternal. They're not identical, so, so we can tell them apart quite easily, With People were suggesting that we get little ribbons to put on their toes just in case. But they're doing uh, a lot of things they're supposed to, you know, they're they're eating and burping and we're changing a lot of diapers, so it's been uh, it's been a really good start.
2: That's a beautiful thing. So it's it's always interesting to me when we have new guests on kind of where they started out. And we've had Adam Schefter who started out on the Denver Broncos beat, we had Peter King who started out with the New York Giants. You kind of started out with the San Francisco 49ers. About when did you do, when were you with the 49ers, and do you have any cool memories or, or stories from your time covering them?
0: Oh, absolutely. I was uh, an intern, a sports intern at the Sacramento Bee in 1996. I just graduated from journalism school. Of UC Berkeley it has a great two-year master's program, and I graduated um, in the summer of, of, of 1996 And I was lucky enough to get an internship at Sacramento that following summer and uh, they hired me on um, after my three-month stay there and I did spend a year doing preps and colleges and backing up uh, some of the pro beats. They had a lot of really talented veteran writers there and I was lucky to kind of follow in their footsteps and kind of learn the business from them and then one year later the, the beat writer of the 49ers asked off of the beat he wanted to spend more time at home with his family instead of smooting down from Sacramento to, to Santa Clara with a 49ers train and was tired of uh, traveling across the country and, and following uh, the, the Niners and of course at that time you know, they played the New Orleans Saints across the country and the Atlanta Falcons so these are like long trips for uh Niners Niners beat writer I was young and, and, and eager and I asked to be put on the beat and the editors took a chance on me and I covered them for three years 97-99, a lot of great playoff games, you had the Steve Young to uh, Terrell Owens, uh, wild-card completion against the Green Bay Packers. Just a lot of talented players, really veteran professionals. Merton Hanks is on the team, Tim McDonald. uh, Running back Garrison Hurst, who is from Georgia. Uh, Obviously, Steve Young and Jerry Rice, two of uh, the all-time greats. Really, really a a good beat with a lot of good reporters um, to learn from, to compete against, and really to uh, kind of grow uh, as a journalist.
3: Could you tell back then, like before T.O. kind of became T.O., that he was going to be an issue with teammates, reporters? It's
0: a good question. I mean, he definitely was an emotional player. And I remember sitting down with him one time. It must have been 1997 or 98. And, you know, him talking about wanting to be famous and wanting to kind of have, you know, Cheeseburgers named after him. You know, back then there weren't really reality shows, so they're, they're more simple, modest goals at that time. Having a burger or a candy bar named after you. but he wanted to be a star. You could tell uh, he was very emotional. He kind of took a different tack than Jerry Rice, who was kind of just the guy was the toast of the town. Him and Joe Montana and Steve Young were just always kind of professional and, and seemed to do things the right way. Whereas you know Owens was a little bit more controversial definitely more emotional but when he came out you know in the mid-90s he was kind of a yes sir no sir guy with reporters and kind of quiet and humble but, but slowly you started to see a little bit of a change and, and really kind of the yearning for becoming a, a star and wanting to kind of escape uh, the shadow of, of jerry Wright.
2: have you maintained a relationship with him can you can you get in touch with him when you need to and is he is he someone that you know that you still cover to this day
0: I've seen him a few times throughout the years at different stops I, I covered him when he was with the Eagles um, Once I moved on to New York uh, he ended up coming on the East Coast as well I, I saw him in Dallas you know kind of reintroduced <laughs> myself to him along the way never had like a great or close relationship with him but he, he definitely knew who I was at least from from, from my from my face and, and I kind of reintroduced myself to him at different stops and in Dallas I remember talking to him a little bit, and that kind of reminds him of, you know, I said back when you were in San Francisco, I remember asking you about X, Y, and Z as kind of a way to uh, uh, refresh his memory of our time in San Francisco, but but definitely as time went on, you know, T.O. was kind of going to that next level where he was looking at reporters almost as a, a great mass as opposed to looking at us as individuals.
2: What did you think of Michael Irvin's announcement today?
0: I thought it was was fascinating and, and brilliant, and and really, really a positive thing for him to do. I mean, someone whose playing career was marked by you know stories of of, of drugs and, and womanizing, and him kind of talking about his brother and, and how he thought maybe he was, his, and Michael himself was overcompensating because his brother was gay, and that he was in a, in a male you know dominated field, a testosterone-driven sport like the NFL. He felt like he had to kind of Go overboard and, and prove that he was, you know, heterosexual. He kind of talked about some of those pressures and and not trying to make excuses for his behavior. But I, I think it's a wonderful thing in in, in 2011 for uh, a professional athlete, a former athlete like Michael Irvin, to be as progressive um, as he was to do an interview in a cover story on Out Magazine. I think it, it says a lot for where we are as a society and a people today. I think it was a really Uh, a positive thing for Michael who I believe has tried to make improvements in his own life. I think this was really a a wonderful thing for someone who kind of uh, had a really checkered career as a a player as far as off the field issues to really come out and say hey listen, this is something that I went through, this is what my family went through. I thought it was very refreshing for Michael Irvin.
2: You're someone who's spent a lot of time over the years in an NFL locker room. How close do you think the NFL locker room environment is to being able to handle an out player in that environment?
0: I really don't know. I, I just don't know. I think the game is so macho-oriented that it would be really fascinating and interesting to see. I mean, you hear a lot of players and kind of in this small talk, and the way that you go know, Deshaun Jackson in a recent interview... Uh, you know some of the words he used, the NBA, Kobe Bryant, you know, Noah. I mean, we you, you keep having these examples uh, of players in, in whatever a heated moment or not a heated moment. These these thoughts, these words, kind of come to their lips. So I don't know if we're ready yet. I, I don't know if the NFL is close to being able to to tolerate a, a homosexual player. I, I think it would be a wonderful thing if possible. I imagine there are gay athletes in the National Football League that maybe. Uh, don't feel comfortable uh, coming out uh, in, in that kind of public forum, especially in that environment of an NFL macho oriented locker room. But I'd like to think that we're closer to that day than maybe we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think the more you see it, you know, you had John Amici in the NBA, you know, after his career. You had uh, a couple of NFL players as well after their career talk about uh, being homosexual and, and, you know, dealing with being in the closet and what that was like. um, I'm just not sure if the NFL is enlightened enough um, to be able to make that next step, but I'd like to see at some point that it would be.
2: There's been so many reports the last few weeks about where people understand the lockout to be. Some people think that it will be settled soon. Some people think we're in danger of losing games. There's been so many conflicting reports. As someone who... Covers the NFL. Where do you understand the lockout to be on July eleventh, two thousand eleven, or twelfth?
0: Yeah, I think the lockout is probably very close to being done. Uh, You know, and it's interesting. I I cover the NFL in the fall and winter, and I cover golf in the spring and the summer. So my eye has not been on the league as much as it normally would be, but I definitely read and I follow. A lot of my colleagues and, and the lion's share of them seem to believe that you know July 21st, July 22nd, right around that deadline before training camps would normally open for some teams that there will be a deal ratified by the NFL owners when they have their meeting. It, it's just been a a long and, and awful lockout. I, I've talked to some former players who. Uh, Interestingly enough, to believe that the quality of this season has been irreparably damaged no matter what happens from here on out, whether you have uh, an agreement in two weeks from now or, or a month from now. This because of the lack of continuity for rookie coaches and rookie players you know, teams with new organizations trying to put their stamps together and have been able to do it. Young quarterbacks like Cam Newton and Blaine Gabbard unable to really work out with a team and learn a playbook. These are the things that I think will be the, the ultimate fallout of this lockout, not to mention the potential for injuries because the players have not been really working out in the supervised environment that like they normally would during OTAs and mini camps and things like that. So I'm going to be on guard for, for the hamstring injuries, for the sloppy play. You know, one player, the next player told me he thinks that the football season, at least for the first few games, might look a lot like the preseason just in terms of the mistakes that you see and maybe the lack of continuity in the huddle.
2: What storylines will you be most interested in following if, if and when this thing wraps up? Is there something you're looking forward to? Maybe where Plaxico Burris or Tiki Barber end up? Uh, maybe how uh, Blaine Gabbert or a, a Cam Newton looks? What are you most excited to really be able to get down and find out about?
0: Yeah, Steven, I'm really interested in in Cam. I'm glad you brought him up. You know, a controversial player in college. Um, You know, number one pick overall. A team in Carolina that really needs an identity and needs a star. I'm also interested though, in in kind of the the veteran, the flip side of of the quarterback position, in Tom Brady and, and Peyton Manning, who for so long have been the top two quarterbacks in the National Football League and kind of since that designation, Neither has won a Super Bowl in a while. You've had Drew Brees step in there, and obviously you had um, just this past season Aaron Rodgers, who a lot of people think might be the best quarterback in football right now. I'm going to be curious to see the pride of Brady, the pride of Peyton Manning, and kind of see where they are as they enter their mid 30s. You know, having taken a lot of hits, both having dealt with the injuries and, and changes in the offensive line and changes in coordinators and and different things like that, changes in personnel, and seeing these two great future Hall of Famers, seeing if they're able to adjust one more time and and kind of take that next step back to the Super Bowl a lot of us are so used to seeing them.
2: You have been lucky enough to kind of have your time wrapped up in golf these last couple months, we're going to get to golf in a second. But I wonder, have you done anything to kind of get your football fixed, so to speak? Did you get into the NFL players' top 100 list at all? Um, Have you watched any maybe AFL or CFL? What have you done to kind of fill that void that the NFL has kind of left us without having free agency and the kind of things that we're used to having this time of year? You know, it's
0: funny. I often find myself really into whatever sport i'm covering at the time it's funny I, when i'm covering the nfl i couldn't tell you who won the last golf tournament i'm covering golf i really don't pay as much attention to the nfl as i probably should this year I, i've been doing a lot of reading just in terms of seeing what my colleagues are writing about and saying about the lockout in a lot of ways there hasn't been much to say the stories have all been about the lockout itself and how close and how far they are from getting this deal done. You know, you, you know, one colleague will say that a player says they're not close to being done. Another colleague will say, Oh, I talked to a source that wasn't in the meeting but knows someone who was in the meeting that says that they are very close. So it's been a weird off season. Normally I would at least thumb through a lot of magazines, maybe pop out an old video, uh, you know, watch an old hard knocks episode or something during the off season. Yeah. I haven't done any of those things this spring and summer, mainly because the golf season's been very interesting with Tiger Woods being off and on the the tour, and then with the NFL really being at a standstill, I haven't really done much, except when you're doing a draft. I followed the draft and watched that on television and was obviously curious to see where a lot of these collisions would end up. But I have not really been delving that much into the NFL because there just hasn't been that much to talk about this offseason.
2: And that seems like the perfect time to move on to golf, and it's the perfect time to have you with a, a major championship coming up this weekend. And the first thing I I think, you did mention Tiger Woods, and the the first thing I'm curious about is what happened exactly with this announcement that wasn't? What's going on with Tiger Woods right now?
0: It's very interesting. He and and his agent, uh, Mark Steinberg, Mark basically left ING and joined a new company. But a couple days ago, there was this big rumor around that that Tiger was going to make some huge announcement on the Golf Channel uh, and then that just set the whole, you know, whole internet on fire. What's he going to do? Is he retiring? Is he, you know, done for the year? You know, is he dumping his swing coach, Sean Foley? And we were all kind of interested in what would happen. And then the following day, we find out that it wasn't a Tiger Woods announcement, it was Tiger Woods' agent is switching, you know, has found a new home, basically. And we were all kind of, wow. It just seemed like, you know, whether it was a mistake on the golf channel's part or a mistake on Tiger's part and his people's part, to me it was just one more kind of curious moment in what has been this complete unraveling of, of a superstar and the superstar of sports in, in Tiger. And it's just, it's just one more thing post scandal. You know, we haven't been able to talk about Tiger winning because he hasn't won. We haven't been able to talk about Tiger cutting into Jack Nicholas' mark of 18 major championships because he's still four back from tying, five back from breaking. You know, he's got hurt, obviously, at the Masters, withdrew after nine holes of the Players' Championship, didn't play in the U.S. Open, won't play in the British Open. No one seems to know when he'll come back. There's always been a little bit of a cloud of mystery surrounding Tiger, but now that he's hurt, that he's not 100%, that he's divorced and has had this scandal, he's even more of a mystery man than he was before.
2: One more thing about Tiger Woods, and I'm going to ask you this question kind of in two different ways. And the first thing is I want you to go back to the day, three days before Thanksgiving, two years ago now. Did you think that Tiger Woods was a lock to break Jack Nicklaus's record for the most major championships?
0: Without question. and where you, It was just a matter, it was a matter of time of just picking the venue. Where, can, where, Where is Tiger Woods right. going to break it? Right. The Masters will be at a, at a British Open. Well, where will
2: it happen? And what do you think now?
0: Now I tell you, when I go back and forth. You know, it really is. It kind of depends on on when I see him, how he's hitting the ball. I think it's going to be really difficult. We're asking him now to to win five more major championships. We're asking him to win, you know, one more major than Phil Nicholson has in his career. To win one less major than Nick Faldo. To win as many majors. Except Semi Ballastaro did his entire career and it's tough when you look at the landscape of all these twenty somethings like Rory McElroy and Charles Schwab and Louis Ushazen and you know Ricky Fowler, Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson. These are all the guys that a good Tiger is gonna have to face now from here on out. Guys that really don't seem to be afraid of Tiger in the same way that maybe some of the guys like Sergio obviously had some battle scars and Ernie and David's love. There's a whole generation of guys in their thirties and forties feel for a while. These guys really just did not have whatever, whatever reason, the stomach for the fight to face Tiger. But these young guys, Rory McIlroy, obviously unafraid. Um, you know, Lou Eustace winning at St. Andrews by seven shots. These guys seem very, very focused. They're young. They're in shape. And they hit the ball past Tiger Woods.
3: Yeah, that was going to be my next question for you. If Tiger Woods isn't going to be Tiger anymore. Is one of the young guys you mentioned, can one of them separate themselves from the field the way Tiger did?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, Steve. A lot of my peers were wondering, is there going to be the next Tiger Woods? Just in the way that everyone wondered after Jack, who's going to be the next Jack Nicholas? And Roy McIlroy is the easy answer. But, you know, we're already quickly moving on, and and in some ways I think possibly diminishing what Tiger has done in the last decade, decade, and a year or two. Fourteen major championships is is a remarkable haul, and just because you know we had an incredible U.S. Open and winning by eight shots, and he may eventually be that next guy, but I tell you what, there's a lot of parity out there right now. You're seeing guys from all over the world that can win championships and win by a lot. You know, Charles Corka winning the Masters by birding the four last holes. You, know, you barely hear about him. Uh, Jason Day, a young kid from Australia, is a, is a wonderful player, already a PGA Tour winner. Ricky Fowler, who had an incredible Ryder Cup, finishing with the four straight birdies. You know He hasn't won on the Tour yet, but he, it's going to happen at some point soon. I need to see a little more from Rory before I'm going to say he's going to be the next you know, Ben Hogan, Otto Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods. you know Is Rory McIlroy going to be that next guy in that sentence? I still think we need to see a little bit more. Um, it's, it's early. He has all the tools. Obviously, he has all the game, but there's things that happen off the course, as we've learned. Injuries happen. It's a long career. Tiger Woods has put together an incredible haul of tournament wins and major championships in a pretty short period of time, and it's going to take a lot for Rory McIlroy to do the same.
2: How hard is it to do what Rory McIlroy did in the sense of completely unraveling on the final day of the Masters and then picking himself up off the mat in just a few short weeks and dominating the U.S. Open the way he did. Have you ever seen anything like that before? And, and how impressive is that?
0: It's really impressive. I think that's why a lot of people, you hear the stories and read such great praise about Rory is because of how he handled that really emotional two month stretch where he shoots eighty in the final round of Augusta National, sits in the locker room for a half hour answering questions over and over again from the media, comes back two months later and wins the US Open and not just wins it, runs away with it. I think it's that kind of stick to it, that toughness that he showed, that ability to bounce back from really catastrophe, uh, uh Greg Norman proportions and to come back and win a major the very next time you tee up in a major says a lot about Rory. I think that's why you have Patrick Harrington saying on Saturday night of the U.S. Open, this is the guy we should be looking at to break Jack Nicklaus's record, not Tiger. It's fun to kind of have a little hyperbole and to really say, I want to, you know, you want to be the first, the first guy to say that. I, I told you so. Everyone wants to be that that first guy, but I tell you what, Sergio Garcia was a shot out of a playoff with Tiger Woods when he was. 19 years old at Medina, Sergio Garcia has zero major championships to his credit. There's a lot of things that can happen. Golf is a very complicated game. But Rory McIlroy definitely deserves credit and kudos for bouncing back the way he did and completely lapping the field at Congressional.
2: I'd imagine how Rory McIlroy does this weekend is one of the big storylines. What are some other storylines that you're looking forward to following this weekend in the British Open?
0: One is Phil Mickelson, who really has a, just a, an, an impressive record at the British Open, and it's kind of surprising for someone who has such a great short game and incredible imagination. For years, we speculated that though I did anyway, and, then, and others as well, that he just didn't like Lynx golf as much as he liked American-style golf. And I think if he got Phil in a quiet moment, he would admit that that definitely was the case, at least for his career, he didn't prefer... British Open golf courses to, to the more parkland inland courses where you, it's more of a target golf type of situation in the United States. I think over the years, as he started to win major championships and appreciate the challenge that the British Open presents, you know, he obviously had a great year in 2004 when he won the Masters. He finished a shot out of the the Todd Hamilton Ernie Elf playoff at Troon, which was his best finish ever um, overseas at the British Open. So I think it's confounded. Some people say it's because he hits the ball too high. Um, I love other states because he's never gotten used to the slower greens. They're almost like molasses over there compared to the Augusta National type of greens or, or U.S. Open or PGA type of greens. So, some people say that's kind of messed with his stroke over there. But a player as talented as he is, I've expected better things from him at a British Open. He says this year he's taking the approach of this is my first time going over there. I'm not going to worry about what I've done or haven't done in the past. I'm going to go in there with a fresh attitude and a positive attitude. So, he's someone. I'm going to be very curious to watch and see how he performs at the British Open this week.
2: Since the turn of the century, Tiger Woods, David Duval, Ben Curtis, Tom Hamilton, Tiger Woods two more times and Stuart Sink are American golfers who have won the British Open. Who outside of Phil, who do you think has the best chance to what American golfers do you think have the best chance to win at St. George's this weekend?
0: I'll go old, but I'll go young. Uh, Steve Stricker coming off this third straight win of the John Deere, also won at Memorial Jack Nicklaus' tournament this year. He actually has a pretty good British Open record, finishing the top ten two years in a row in, in 2007 in He was actually in the final group with Sergio Garcia, missed a couple of short putts, ended up uh, far back of the, of the Harrington-Sergio playoff. And in 2008, um, he actually finished tied for eighth when, when Patrick Harrington repeated. So... Stickler someone who is just a wonderful player. He's won 11 PGA Tour events, has not won a major championship, but he's such a, a nice guy. I've often wondered if, he, if he's lean enough and, and, and tough enough and good enough to win a major. I think he's finally starting to kind of appreciate just how good he is and believe in himself and believe that he can get it done. So he's one American that I would definitely watch. And the other would be Nick Watney, who just absolutely bombs the ball and has won on several different type of golf courses. He won at Doral. In Florida earlier in the year, then he won at Irondale on the East Coast, uh, outside of Philadelphia. Two completely different golf courses. Uh, from Sacramento, California, plays very well on different types of golf courses. Contended at the PGA at Whistling Straits before blowing up uh, in that final round. But I think he's starting to learn to be comfortable in contention. His victories would would, would bear that out. So Nick Watney is another name I'd watch uh, on the American side of the
1: ledger.
2: Nick Faldo is the last Englishman to win this tournament in 1992. Luke Donald and Lee Westwood are two of the world's greatest golfers. Can they end this drought this weekend?
0: I actually picked Lee Westwood to win the whole thing, to win it this year. Uh, I've been on his uh, you know, case, you know, for lack of a better term. I, I had lunch with Lee at Doral in March and wrote a feature on him for our Sports Illustrated you know, Golf Plus Masters preview on – Kind of his close calls over the last few years, several, you know, second place finishes and third place finishes. He was close again at, at congressional, and you know, close being in quotes because Rory ran away with that, but was a shot out of the Tory Pines playoff with Tiger and Rocco and a shot out of the Stuart C- Tom Watson playoff at Turnberry in 09. He's just been sniffing it so often that you have to think that the 38 year old former number one, now number two, is going to break his major duck, as they say in the UK. At some point very soon, hits the ball very straight and on a quirky golf course like St. George's where the ball bounces in different directions, I still want the guy that hits the ball on the line and he does it very well. And Luke Donald, the number one player in the world who's just won the Scottish Open and won the match play earlier this year, won the, the BMW PGA, which is one of the bigger tournaments on the European Tour, has finally learned how to close out golf tournaments. There are a lot of questions about Luke on Sundays and there's not those questions aren't being asked anymore the only thing lacking on the resume is a major championship and and luke and lee do it differently luke has a tremendous short game lee is more of a of a power player doesn't have the short game that luke has either one could get it done but they would definitely do it in different ways
2: could the weather be a great equalizer this weekend and is there a chance that we could have kind of a fluke winner maybe like todd hamilton was in 2004
0: Absolutely. That's, that's always the question mark, and, and you just never know what the weather's going to do over there. And, and, you know, they don't have kind of the, you know, the two-piece starts. You know, you basically it's, it's, a, it's a line of guys that go. It can be bad in the morning and great in the afternoon or, or, or vice versa. Um, and it's you really it's left to the golfing guys. And, and we saw it last year at, at St. Andrews where, where Roy back where goes sixty three eighty. You know, and, and on Thursday and Friday, a lot of that second round 80 has to do with the weather. A lot of it depends on what, you know, what time you tee off on Thursday and Friday, what the weather's doing, uh, you know, whether it's an into the wind or downwind or crosswind. will play a lot of havoc on these guys' minds. That's why you think that, you know, you just don't know. You can almost throw you know, the names in the hat, shake them up and pull out a, a Ben Curtis in 2003 or Hamilton in 2004. It happens a lot over there because the weather is just so quirky you never know what you're going to get from hour to hour and sometimes from minute to minute.
2: One last golf question for you. I I was looking at Anthony Kim as being one of the next great stars in golf. What has happened to Anthony Kim's game in 2011, and is the injury that he had last year potentially still lingering, or has he just totally lost himself?
0: I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, He definitely has had injuries, but I also know that Anthony – the young guy that that enjoys himself and, and he's you know he's told me that he told other reporters that and I think he has to kind of find that happy medium between being uh, a superstar youngster, which he is with with you know a lot of money and, and a lot of talent and you know a lot of you know toys at his disposal, and also someone who's learning to please really work hard and budget his time he's talked about that himself he talks about. One day walking on the range at Torrey Pines, he was out there about 9.30, and he saw Tiger, and Tiger was complimenting him on how well he played in a recent tournament. And Anthony said, hey, Tiger, you know, it's 9.30. You want me to go play a practice round? And Tiger said, play a practice round? I'm done playing my practice round. And <laughs> you know, Tiger had been out there at 5.30 in the morning and played 18 holes, and Anthony showed up at 9.30. And Anthony, you know, he told me that anecdote. and It really was a telling story about Anthony trying to learn – how to work hard and how these guys do it out here. He's still very young, has a lot of talent and time. He's on his side, but but you can be left behind quickly. You know, Anthony Kim was the story of the Ryder Cup just a couple of years ago, and, and won at Quail Hollow and won the AT&T National. You know, he's not the story anymore. It's Rory McIlroy. It's, it's Bubba Watson winning twice this year. You know, there are other guys out there that are really sitting in the place where a lot of people think Anthony Kim should be.
2: The Sportscasters are here with Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, and you can find some of his work on golf.com. A couple more questions with you here. Oh, and also I should mention his Twitter at SI underscore Damon Hack. Just a couple more questions for you. I want to kind of change gears a little bit and just talk about kind of technology and how it's changing what you do. You're a guy who kind of seems to enjoy Twitter, seems to enjoy the interaction with the fans. Is that the proper assessment of your relationship with Twitter? And what kind of role do you see Twitter playing in sports as we move forward?
0: Yeah, it's funny, Stephen. I I was dragged to Twitter kicking and screaming because I kind of fancy myself an old-school guy. I still subscribe to an actual newspaper, the New York Times, where I worked from 2002 to 2007. I like magazines and I like books still. But there's no question that that Twitter and Facebook and these other social media allow us to be seen and read by more people. The Internet's a powerful uh, engine that that really is where, it's not where we're going, it's where we are. So I try to do both. You know, I I love to be in SI, the magazine. It's important to me. But I also know that I can write for golf.com or SI.com and have people read me and find me that maybe don't get the magazine. And I often link my stories that I write on uh, whatever medium it is, whether it's si.com, si, or golf.com, I'll link it to Twitter, I'll link it to Facebook, and that's another reason or another way for people to find me. So I, I definitely think there's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of people tweeting, but to me Twitter's almost like it's a new age AT wire. A lot of people are breaking news on Twitter where they used to break them in in a, in a newspaper or a magazine story.
2: I love magazines as well. I love Sports Illustrated. And one of my favorite things has been this Sports Illustrated app and the way that it has kind of made the magazine come to life. Have you had a chance to kind of play with Sports Illustrated on the iPad? And how do you think the magazine can move forward and take advantage more and more of that new platform?
0: I do. I have an iPad. I have the SI app. And I do think that you know, for a magazine that is Sports Illustrated, it's it, we're not just words; we're, we're pictures, and you know, pictures have been a big part of of the kind of history of our magazine. And there are iconic photographs that people remember, you know, from their childhood. And I think the iPad is another vehicle for SI to be able to show a large number of pictures from a sporting event or a game that maybe they can't all get into a magazine, but you can see, you know, 30 pictures from some, you know. The Dallas Mavericks against the Miami Heat or or Phil Mickelson at the British Open this week. I think it just gives people more uh, to look at, more to digest, and I think that's not a bad thing. It gives SI more platforms and more versatility as things move forward.
2: Jane Levy and I were talking a couple hours ago about whether or not the iPad can kind of help... A renaissance for newspapers if if the iPod is a way that newspapers can reach younger readers and kind of reinvent themselves and be more relevant in a time where we have all kind of thought that newspapers are in danger of being less and less relevant what side of i think jane was more along the lines of oh newspapers are too much of a dinosaur to really embrace it and i was more on the side of well you know it seems like some newspapers like the new york post comes to mind have really have embraced it and jumped all in and have improved improved their newspaper because of it
0: well i'd you, my old employer the new york times they were very early in having the newyorktimes.com and it looked a lot and looks a lot like the newspaper itself it's clean you know when you're on the New York Times website that it's kind of an outgrowth and part of the New York Times itself. And I do think the way things are going, you know, my three month old uh, I'd be very surprised if they're reading newspapers, but they'll have blackberries and iPads and iPods and, and MacBook Airs and, and different, different ways to, to gather and, and get news and, and, to, and to be entertained. I just think that's the way we're headed, and I think for a lot of young people, with you know, short attention spans, they're gonna to have to, you know, get their news on the go. They'll wanna have it handheld, they'll wanna have it in a tablet form. And I think uh, if, if you don't think that train is coming or it's already arrived, you're probably gonna be, you know, out in the cold pretty soon. So I think that's why good good companies like Sports Illustrated, you know, like the New York Times, are being forward thinking. They're trying to stay ahead of the curve because there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of different media outlets that are competing for people's attention and you want to be able to give them the versatility and you know be able to do it in a quick amount of time when people are doing so many different things and they have their attention span you know divided among so many different things
2: the sportscasters here with damon hack from sports illustrated dot com and golf.com and you can follow him on twitter at si underscore damon hack Last thing, what's going on with Damon Hack here in the next couple of months? Where can we find you? Where can we read you? Are you working on anything exciting?
0: You know what? I've got uh, probably a PGA Championship in my future in August, as well as once training camp opens, uh, I'll be talking to my football editor, Mark Moravis, we'll figuring out what teams I'll be hitting at this point. I don't know which camps I'll be hitting yet, but I- I'm looking forward to getting back on the gridiron at some point soon and and kind of rounding out this golf season as we move forward into the late summer and early fall up for
2: football. We can't thank you enough for this. We really appreciate all the time, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Thank you very much, Damon.
0: Thank
2: you, Stephen. Okay, we'll talk to you soon.
0: Have a good one, buddy.
2: Sportscasters back with one last segment here of episode number 30. I want to thank Jane Levy and Damon Hack for being on the show today. Of course, you can find Mr. Hack at SI underscore Damon Hack. You cannot find Jane on Twitter, as she mentioned. She is not a Twitter kind of gal. Uh, but you can find her on our website, www.janelevy.com. And, of course, Mr. Hack's work can be found on Sports Illust- in Sports Illustrated on sportsillustrated.com or on golf.com. Couple other notes before we get to pick four. We have not had a new Facebook like in a while, and I wouldn't mind changing that. So if you want to if you haven't yet liked us on Facebook, the address is facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Feel free to email us at any time. Our email address is the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The show is at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Likes Sports. And I am at Diversity23. Of course, you can follow our blog. I think the latest blog up is a piece I did on the NFL Network's top 100 players. And that it can be found at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And if you ever want to know any of those things, you can always find them at our website in the About section. The website is www.sports-casters.com. One last piece of business today, and that is pick four. Don struggled last week, going only one in three. He won his pitcher in a 13 to five pitchers duo.
3: I think, if nothing else, I think I'm 3 and 0 in my pitchers so far. So.
2: Yep, Orgando got the win over the Baltimore Orioles, 13 to 5. You lost the game of the week, which was Sweden over the U.S. You had the U.S. 2 to 1. You also, <laughs> we can't get Pirates games right. <laughs> As you decided to pick Take the Pirates them, yeah. to beat the Cubs And of course the Cubs beat the Pirates that day 6-3 to three. And you predicted that the Sabres might trade a young defenseman They have yet to do so I on the other hand went 3-1 and one. one of my best weeks in pick 4 in a long time Just missed a perfect week in the Sweden upsetting U.S. In the Women's World Cup 2-1 to one. I won my pitcher, Barry Zito uh, Another strong performance since coming off the DL A 2-1 to one victory over the Padres also, I mentioned that I had picked the Tigers based on Justin Verlander starting, and he was terrific, beating the Royals two to one. And I boldly predicted, maybe not so boldly, but we let it go that Derek Jeter would have his four thousand three thousandth hit by the All Star Game. That I would was be nervous. bold. If you thought it was
3: the four thousand. Yeah,
2: I was nervous because he got rained out on Friday. Yeah, uh, and he was still short, needed two hits. So luckily, Derek Jeter that. Moves my record to fifty three and fifty two. Donu are fifty one and fifty six with a lot of work to do to get back to five hundred. The game of the week is the USA versus France in the Women's World Cup. The game will be played tomorrow, Wednesday, July thirteenth at twelve o'clock on ESPN. And I'm going to pick the United States. I can't see them letting down after beating. Brazil, it's almost the game that the U.S. 1980 Olympic team had right to play Russia. against Finland after they had played Russia. Maybe a similar circumstance, and uh, but I'm going to stick with the USA.
3: Right. I, I read an article today, and I wish I could give credit, but I don't remember where it was from, that said the one thing that they might have to avoid is themselves. Uh, don't get caught up in the hype outside the game. They probably are the favorite. Like we said earlier, they avoided – uh, they got around the team that they tried to. Uh, they probably would have liked to avoid in general. And Germany's so, gone. And Germany's gone. So I'm gonna also make the Homer pick of the United States.
2: My winning pitcher of the week. I'm gonna stick with the former Moneyball Oakland A's, and I'm gonna pick Tim Hudson. He's currently eight and six with a 3.57 ERA. Obviously, he plays for the Braves, and he pitches Friday, July fifteenth, seven thirty-five at Turner Field against LeVon Hernandez. 5 and 8 with a 5.01 ERA. I'm going to pick t- Tim Hudson to get the win for the Atlanta Braves over the Nationals on Friday. I'm sure we talked about
3: it, but man, I mean just as a quick aside, this is the year of the pitcher. You look at across, it absolutely, across yes. the board at the ERAs these guys are putting up, like it's unheard of for the era we just came out of. Uh, my winning pitcher this week is going to be Dan Heron of the Angels. Another uh, former athletic. He is 10-5 and 5 right now with a 2.61 ERA, and I'm going to take him Friday at 10.05 Eastern over
2: your Oakland A's. Host choice. I'm going to go with the NL over the AL in tonight's Major League Baseball All-Star Game at 8 o'clock p.m. I always pick the NL because the AL is always so f- heavily favored, and to me it's a coin flip game. <laughs> but the AL – It's always favored. Bulletin board material then? Yeah, the AL is always (laughs) favored. So I just always pick the NL, and it worked last year. The NL did win. Brian McCann of the Atlanta Braves was the MVP. So I will pick the NL to beat the AL.
3: My host choice, I'm going to go with the Tigers over the White Sox on Friday at 7. I'm going to take your pitcher from last week, Justin Verlander, and hope to get the W.
2: My bold prediction this week, I'm going to say that Andrew McCutcheon, who was originally the biggest all-star snub. Mike Harrington complained on this show last week that he was not included in the final five vote, but he eventually was added to the National League team as an injury replacement. And I will say that Andrew McCutcheon will be the Major League Baseball All-Star Game MVP tonight. My bold prediction, going back to women's soccer, I'm going to say that uh,
3: local as in she plays locally, Alex Morgan is going to score the game-winning goal of the World Cup Final. So U.S. is going to win. Alex Morgan... She's a doll. Yeah, our favorite here is going to win the game.
2: All right, that's going to do it for episode 30 of the Sportscasters. Again, I want to thank our guests, Jane Levy and Damon Hack. Next week, I don't have anything official to announce yet, but we are working on getting one of the very popular ESPN football analyst to be on the show. The hope is that the lockout will be over by then. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we are going to have, hopefully, someone very familiar to you from the football side of ESPN on, as well as maybe doing something different related with some computer stuff and continuing the 32-team, 32-blog series as well. So that's it for today. We're out.
1: All right.